1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, Episode 60 The Purge of the Girondins, Part 2. In the last episode, we explored the historiography surrounding the Girondin faction and witnessed the establishment of the infamous Commission of Twelve. Created to root out conspiracy in the capital, the Commission was a tad too eager, to say the least. In this episode, we'll be examining the series of events triggered by the provocative actions of the Commission of Twelve, including the insurrection of 31 May. The episode extra for this episode unpacks the incredibly controversial speech of the Girondin deputy Isna, a speech worthy of the Duke of Brunswick, and not a deputy of France. As always, thank you to everyone helping to keep grey history on the air. This show has only gotten to episode 60 because of the support of the amazing people who sponsor the podcast, and I can't thank you enough for your contribution to Grey History. Of course, if you're not part of the most amazing community on the planet, then I need your help. There's nothing about Grey History that is guaranteed, and I cannot stress enough that the only way to ensure that there's more Grey History waiting for you tomorrow is to do your part to keep the podcast going. For as little as half a cup of coffee, you can help promote history that isn't black and white and enjoy a range of exclusive perks and benefits in the process. So grab your phone and follow the links in the show notes or on the website, and all it takes is two minutes to enjoy hours of bonus content, both now and in the future. I need your help today. It's with great pleasure that I get to introduce the newest members of the Grey History community. Since it's now November, an extra warm welcome to the newest virtuous citizens Adrin, Hannes, Jeff, Gunnar, Jonathan, and David. Another extra warm welcome to Matthew B., Matthew K., Diana, and Saba. Of course, all revolutions need champions, and so it's with great pleasure that I get to introduce Harold to the champions of the people, which include Cindy, George, Tim, Mark, William, Laura, Daniel, Monica, Joel, Susan, Adam, Tom, Scott and Eyal. Finally, a huge thank you to the pantheon of heroes, the heroes of the revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Auger, Kevin and Noel. Before we get into it, one final thank you to those people who have been leaving written reviews, sharing the show on social media, writing in words of encouragement, contributing one off donations, and just helping Grey History in some other form. I can't stress enough just how much this helps the podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to do so. If you can find just one opportunity to share the show with friends or family between now and the next episode, That would be amazing, especially as we head into Napoleon Mania this month. The show is not yet at the point of being sustainable, but if everyone just found one person to listen to the podcast, then it would be. So please, with the upcoming Napoleon movie out in just a few weeks, now is the perfect time to recommend Grey History, The French Revolution. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 60, The Purge of the Girondins, Part 2. One often meets his destiny on the road he takes to avoid it. Such were the wise words of Master Uguay. The idea of one meeting their fate while attempting to prevent it is a common irony explored in many works of fiction. From the plays of ancient Greece and Shakespearean England to the modern blockbusters of Star Wars and Harry Potter, it is frequent to see one fulfilling their destiny precisely because of the actions Taken to escape it. But, like so much fiction, the wise words of Master Uguay reflect reality. History is littered with examples of those who sought to avoid one outcome only to inadvertently secure it. In fact, the French Revolution alone has no shortage of such cases. By May 1793, the Girondin deputies of the Convention were aware of an increasingly grim fate. Insurrection was the talk of the town, and the representatives knew full well that another September massacres could soon cause their own demise. Seeking to gain mastery of the situation, the Girondins adopted drastic measures. They appealed to the provinces, they rallied support in the capital, and perhaps most importantly, they sought to marshal the unaligned deputies of the plain. Denouncing foreign plots and plans for assassinations, Girondin deputies clamoured for the suppression of the Paris Commune and the relocation of the Convention away from Paris. Yet, despite the considerable ill will towards the Parisian municipality and the radicalism of some sections of Paris, the convention consented to neither of these measures. Instead, the deputies of the plain moderated the demands of the Girondins, approving an investigation of the municipal government, rather than its abolition. Exacerbated by its frequent excesses, and concerned by rumours of a planned insurrection, on the 18th of May, 1793, the convention created the infamous commission of 12. This new Girondin-dominated committee wasted no time in rooting out the threats of the capital. And in an ironic twist of fate,
2: the actions undertaken by the Girondins secured the very outcome they were hoping to avoid.
1: Having discovered evidence of a planned insurrection, And having heard claims that some radicals intended to Septemberize the Girondins in extrajudicial killings, the newly created Commission of Twelve made its move. On the 24th of May, the Commission arrested three influential radicals. This included Valais, a leading member of the Enraged, as well as Dobson, an influential president of one of the city's 48 sections. Perhaps most importantly, The list of the detained also included a senior member of the Parisian municipality, a certain Jacques Hebert. One of the city's most prominent revolutionary journalists, this arrest was not of some little-known troublemaker. Instead, this was the arrest of a household name, a popular figure amongst the revolutionary cohorts of Paris. But that wasn't all of it. The Commission had also demanded records from the Commune, and ordered an investigation into leading members of the municipality, including the Jacobin mayor, Pache. Furthermore, the Convention, at the behest of the Girondins, had placed de facto control of the Parisian armed forces under the Commission of Twelve. Ironically, while the Commission was vigorously pursuing insurrection, it was inadvertently provoking the very uprising it was attempting to subdue. The commission had commenced an all-out assault against the Paris Commune, the Paris Sections and the Parisian sans culottes Such a provocation had consequences. The next day, on the 25th of May, the various allies of the detained mobilised their forces. Historians debate as to how many sections joined the show of force, but historian Maurice Slavin, who has written extensively on the insurrection, puts the figure at 28 of the city's 48 sections. Uniting behind a common cause, the aggrieved sections of Paris supported a delegation from the Commune, which appeared before the Convention. Always ambitious, the Commune's delegation not only demanded the release of the imprisoned, but also an investigation into the city's sections, which had slanderously accused the mayor of assisting in the rumored insurrection. Additionally, they demanded justice for Abbe, by punishing the commission of twelve for committing crimes against a public magistrate. The Girondin deputy Isna, who was still occupying the rotating presidency of the Convention, took the opportunity to respond to the petitioners. Having warned of an English-linked plot. Just a week prior, Isnar started off relatively calm. He stated plainly that the convention would not tolerate an innocent citizen remaining in
2: chains. Surely a gesture of goodwill towards the aggrieved. But it's here that Isnar went rogue.
1: A Girondin to his core, Isnar nevertheless exemplifies just how disunited the Girondins could be. And represents a great case as to why some historians argue that even the word faction is too strong a word for the Girondins. A passionate critic of both the émigrés and the refractory clergy, Isna had at times spearheaded some of the harshest and most repressive measures against these enemies of the revolution. Furthermore, he had voted against the appeal to the people and voted loudly in favour of executing the king. On both of these issues, Isna had broken publicly with many other leading figures of the Gironde. But, having once called for striking Louis because the king had attacked the sovereignty of the people, he now turned those same passions against the petitioners. Once more, the people of Paris, and in particular a small and radical minority, was exerting undue influence on the national representation. For Isnar, tyranny was tyranny, and it didn't matter if the tyrant was one king with a golden crown, or hundreds of sans culottes with red liberty caps. The fashion may have changed, but the principle remained the same. As such, Isnar proceeded to let loose against the delegation before him. In an iconic and divisive speech, Isnar held nothing back. Magistrates of the people, it is especially necessary that you hear these important truths. France has placed the site of national representation in Paris, and Paris must respect this. If ever the convention were debased, if ever by one of those insurrections that have repeatedly surrounded the national convention since 10 March, and of which we have always been the last to have been warned by the magistrates, if, I say, By these ever-recurring insurrections, there should be an attack on the national representation. I declare to you, in the name of France, I declare in the name of the whole of France, Paris would be destroyed. It would not be long before people were searching the banks of the Seine to see if this city had ever existed. If by these recurring insurrections, there should be an attack on the national representation,
2: Paris would be destroyed, and people would have to search to see if the city had ever existed. As I said, Isna went rogue. Now, as you can imagine, threatening the capital with
1: Death Star-like destruction at the hands of fellow Frenchmen, elicited a response. Witnesses, contemporaries, historians, many have something to say about this speech, a speech which historian Eric Hazen claims did so much to inscribe Isnar's name into history. To unpack these responses, as well as my own thoughts properly, would be a significant digression. So instead, will explore the large variety of reactions in the episode extra for this episode.
2: But for all of the differences in opinions, and there are many, there is one thing that is beyond any doubt.
1: In Threatening Paris with Complete Destruction, Isnar was echoing the words of the Prussian Duke of Brunswick and his infamous manifesto. And... Just like that manifesto in the lead up to the 10th of August, the Girondins' threats had taken an already inflammatory situation and added a few dozen powder kegs to the blaze.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for long-time students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War.
1: Knocked back by the convention, the supporters of the detained regrouped. The next day, on the 26th of May, the radical cohorts of Paris Continued their campaign to reverse the actions of the Commission of Twelve. The Club of Revolutionary Republican Women Citizens took to the streets in demonstrations, as did those mobilized by other societies and the city's most radical sections. Critically, that evening at the Jacobin Club, the cause of insurrection received a tremendous boost. For the first time in the history of the revolution, Robespierre openly endorsed insurrection, well ahead of the actual rebellion. Declaring that he himself would rise in insurrection, Robespierre proclaimed to the Jacobins. I urge every citizen to retain a sense of their rights. I invite him to rely on his own strength and that of the entire nation, I invite the people to join the National Convention in insurrection against all corrupt deputies. I declare that, having received from the people the right to defend their rights, I regard as my oppressor anyone who interrupts me or who refuses me the floor, and I declare that I alone place myself in insurrection against the President and against all the members who sit in the Convention. When a guilty contempt towards the sans culottes is shown, I declare that I am in insurrection against corrupt deputies. I invite all Montagnard deputies to rally and fight against the aristocracy, and I say that there is only one alternative for them, either to resist with all their strength and all their power, or to resign. Robespierre was clear. He would rise in insurrection against the corrupt deputies. While accounts differ as to just how emphatically he encouraged others to participate, Robespierre had most certainly used the I word, and for many, that's all they needed to hear. Yet, having explicitly warned against insurrection throughout March and April, the question should be asked. What changed? Why, by the end of May, was Robespierre not only willing to embrace, but actively encourage insurrection? According to historian Peter McPhee, although Robespierre was still quite wary of popular action against the national government, he had now reconciled himself to the fact that insurrection was the only means to break the deadlock which gripped the convention. Seeing insurrection as a genuine expression of the people's will, Robespierre could endorse such extrajudicial measures.
2: At least, he could do so while he remained the beneficiary. However, despite endorsing insurrection, Robespierre resisted any attempts to specify what exactly should be done. Yes, he would rise in insurrection, but what about everyone else? For Robespierre, that was not his decision to make. Although he knew full well
1: that he would benefit from a purge of the Convention, he refused to actually lead it. Instead, he claimed that he was incapable of prescribing the means of security, and such a service was not to be accomplished by any single individual. Furthermore, he emphasized that he, could certainly not play any leading role, as he was exhausted by four years of revolution. Humility? Perhaps. Or perhaps he just didn't want to get his hands dirty. Whatever the case may be, Robespierre had no intention of orchestrating the coming insurrection. This then opened the initiative to others. This not only included other Jacobins, but also members of the enraged, as well as
2: those associated with the Commune and the sections of Paris. By the next day, the 27th of May, the coming insurrection was not yet in full swing. Abert,
1: Vallée and Dobson all remained in prison, and the various institutions representing the sections of Paris had not agreed upon a new uprising.
2: Nevertheless, the situation in the capital continued to deteriorate. So too did the Convention. That
1: evening, after hours of venomous debate, petitioners representing the city's most radical sections once more flocked to the Convention. As they did so, the Commission of Twelve attempted to block their path by deploying National Guardsmen from sections more favourable to the Girondins. Despite this, their presence failed to secure the building completely. Some likened the scene to that of a siege, although it must be noted that while intimidating, the assembling crowd was not violent. At least, not yet. In the ensuing disorder, deputies struggled to enter and exit, and everyday citizens occupied not only the public galleries, but wandered around the floor of the convention, finding space and seats wherever they could. Late in the evening, a staunch Jacobin deputy took over the duties of presiding for the session, and ignored calls from the Girondins to call the sitting to an end. Now late in the evening, and packed with petitioners, the convention was dark, crowded, loud, and completely disorderly. And it was in this environment, one wholly inappropriate for genuine debate, that the petitioners lobbied the convention. Amongst their demands was the suppression of the tyrannical Commission of Twelve and the release of a bear and the other patriots. As each petitioner had their voice heard, sympathetic deputies used the general commotion as a cover to start preparing decrees which would implement these demands. With the night far advanced and a great number of deputies absent from the proceedings, The Jacobins made their move. Decrees were passed liberating the detained radicals and abolishing the Commission
2: of Twelve. The petitioners were triumphant, at least for a while. The situation in which this was achieved
1: was by no means uncontroversial. The protests came thick and fast. In the chaotic environment, some deputies claimed that they hadn't heard the vote or couldn't discern the true outcome. Others claimed that regular citizens had taken the seats of absent deputies and then proceeded to vote as if they were deputies. Whatever the case may be, it is clear that if this was the genuine will of the national government, it was its genuine will for only a few hours. The next day, on the 28th of May, a more orderly and less protester-filled convention reinstated the Commission of Twelve. It did so after the speeches of Girondin deputies which berated Jacobin opponents and proclaimed to their colleagues that the convention had been controlled by the preachers of murder. Decrying the events of the days prior, deputies charged that the convention had not been free. And It seems that they had a point. Without the presence of the petitioners, the convention voted by a small but still clear majority in favour of re-establishing the Commission of Twelve. Critically, the convention chose not to re-arrest Haber, Valais and Dobson, and so the free citizens were now able to return to their normal lives. Lives which absolutely did not involve instigating the seditious
2: conspiracy they had just been accused of planning. With the Commission of Twelve re-established, the radical sections of
1: Paris found it easier to maintain the momentum and energy required to purge the Girondins. On the same day as the resurrection of the hated Commission, the not-at-all-suspicious Évêché Assembly hastened their not-at-all-mutinous activities. If you recall, it was the workings of the Avice Assembly, occurring in the former residence of the Archbishop, which had unnerved so many deputies of both the Gironde and the Plain. In fact, it was in no small part the meetings of this Assembly which helped to bring about the creation of the Commission of Twelve to investigate seditious conspiracies in the capital. Well, these concerns were sound as the Avishi Assembly now formally transformed itself into an insurrectionary assembly. Dropping all pretense of a mere gathering to coordinate the nation's defence, the sections favourable to insurrection were officially asked to send insurrectionary delegates to the Avishi. On the 29th and 30th, these delegates agreed a plan for insurrection. Importantly, Not only did the section's delegates transform themselves into an insurrectionary assembly, but they also promptly nominated an executive committee. This executive committee, called the Committee of Nine, was tasked with leading Paris in the coming struggle. Now, the Avicii Assembly's Committee of Nine, not to be confused with the Commission of Twelve, will undergo a name change quite quickly. So. For simplicity, I'm going to refer to it as the Central Revolutionary Committee. As the executive of the Insurrectionary Avicii Assembly, the Central Revolutionary Committee was the body charged with centrally coordinating the insurrection. Hence the name, Central Revolutionary Committee. Thus, by the evening of the 30th, the section's delegates and their nominated leaders were set on insurrection. Critically the insurrectionary movement was soon bolstered by two considerable allies. Both the authorities of the departments and the Parisian Jacobin Club officially joined the movement that evening. With sympathisers supporting insurrection within both the National Convention and the Paris Commune, the time had finally come to strike. As such, moves were taken to secure the city. Customs barriers were closed, the armoury was seized, and exits outside of Paris were strategically curtailed. Not even the post was allowed to get out, denying the Girondins the chance to send for help.
2: By the time the sun rose on the 31st of May, insurrection was already the order of the day. Just one week after the commission of 12 had originally moved against its
1: opponents, the rebellion it had sought to prevent had finally arrived. During the night of the 30th and 31st of May, the insurrectionists of Paris commenced their master plan. Largely following the script of the insurrection of the 10th of August, one of the first targets was not the Convention, but instead the Paris Commune. At about 6am in the morning, Commissioners sent by the Avicii Assembly's Central Revolutionary Committee arrived at the town hall. There, they found the officials of the municipal government and promptly told them that the people of Paris were rescinding the powers of the established authorities.
2: Now, this may seem a little off to you. Government officials in the office at 6am on a Friday if that isn't suspicious, I don't know what is. So, what's actually going on here? Well,
1: there's two easy explanations for this seemingly inexplicable behaviour. The first is that all of this is pre planned. It's beyond any doubt that some members of the municipal government, including the mayor, knew full well that the insurrection was coming. In fact, It's argued by some historians that the reason the Avicii Assembly existed in the first place was because the Commune couldn't legally plan an insurrection, and thus an extrajudicial body was needed to help, at least officially, keep some distance between the municipal government and the insurrectionary movement. In reality, we know many Commune officials were involved in the meetings of the insurrectionists, and having been across the plan, it was therefore easy to make sure that everyone was at the right place and at the right time. Furthermore, the second explanation for these hard-working early birds has to do with bells. Even for those commune officials who could not be trusted with secrets, these individuals could still hear the ringing of the toxin. On the order of the insurrectionists, the tocsin sounded sometime around 3am in the morning. Once the church bells were ringing, all of Paris, not just the insurrectionists, knew something was afoot. Thus, when the commissioners of the Central Revolutionary Committee arrived, they could promptly hand over some documentation showing that they represented
2: a majority of the city's sections and thus had the authority to dissolve the Paris Commune. But, despite this successful start to the morning, a plot twist immediately
1: occurs. Having abolished the municipal government, the commissioners of the Central Revolutionary Committee swiftly reinstated it. An unexpected development, but one that had immediate benefits. Firstly, the Paris Commune was now a revolutionary Paris Commune, free of the legal restrictions that had stopped it from coordinating the insurrection in the first place. Reincarnated as a revolutionary body, it could now use its theoretically unlimited authority to take the measures required to ensure the insurrection's success. This brings us to the second immediate benefit, legitimacy. The commune was never the target of the insurrection. In fact, its officials had just been vigorously pursued by the Commission of Twelve. Instead, the municipality represented a tremendous ally to the insurrectionists. Full of Jacobins and other sympathetic revolutionaries, the reinstated commune could provide some much-needed legitimacy to what was an illegal insurrection. While the insurrectionary Avicii Assembly could claim it represented a majority of the sections, it would just be far easier for the Commune to join in on the insurrection, allowing the rebels to deploy both the municipality's moral authority as well as the armed forces under its command. And this is exactly what occurred. The Commune formally joins the insurrection along with the Department of Paris. In fact, both promptly nominated representatives to the Central Revolutionary Committee. The inclusion of these members is actually when the original committee of nine renamed itself to the Central Revolutionary Committee. Henceforth, the original committee, nominated by the Avicii Assembly, would work hand in glove with the representatives of the Paris Commune and the Paris Department. Acting as one, the forces of revolutionary Paris could now pursue the Girondins, and their despised commission
2: of 12. But to digress for a moment, I do want to point out one important development
1: hiding beneath the surface of all these shenanigans. Initially, the driving force behind this insurrection is really the city's 48 sections. It was a majority of the sections who had sent delegates to the Avicii Assembly and it was those sections' delegates and their appointed Central Revolutionary Committee which, more or less, led the insurrection of 31 May. With the notable exception of Marat, most Jacobin deputies were not playing active roles in the insurrection, nor were Jacobin officials of the Paris Commune. Sure, they might support it, they might even be across the plans, but this was not an insurrection led by the Jacobin Club. Nor was it led by the Cordelier Club, which, although discussed less frequently than in the past, was still very much alive and well. In fact, according to some accounts, Danton was actively discouraging the Cordelier Club from entering the fray. More on that later. So, it's within the sections that we find the momentum and leadership for the insurrection. yet. This statement can be deceiving. Upon further examination, it becomes clear that amongst the sections, there was absolutely no single political faction which ruled the roost. The sections may have been working in unison, but they were absolutely not homogenous in terms of their political orientation. For example, Valais and Dobson, the men detained alongside a bear by the Commission of Twelve, possessed two very different worldviews. views. Ballet was a leading figure associated with the enraged, perhaps the second most important enraged leader behind Jacques Roux. Dobson, however, was a president of one of the city's more influential sections, and he was far more of a mainstream Jacobin. Now, initially, one could make the argument that those sympathetic to the enraged wielded a considerable amount of power within the insurrectionary movement. This perhaps not surprising. Leading members of the enraged had championed insurrection for months, and were associated with both the soap and sugar riots of February, and the aborted attempts at insurrection which had occurred routinely since March. Having been detained by the Commission of Twelve for planning seditious conspiracy, Valet was nominated to the Avicii Assembly's new Central Revolutionary Committee upon his release. Once installed, he would play a leading role in, oh, that's right, seditious conspiracy. In fact, historian Albert Sabul claims that Vallée was the motive force behind the insurrection's plans, and historian Maurice Slavin asserts that he was even the one who gave the order to commence the uprising. Irrelevant of Valais' individual actions, it is clear that historians routinely focus on the influence of the enraged movement more broadly. Historian Albert Marty, for example, claims that the insurrection of 31 August was made by the enraged, and that the mountain were obliged to follow, not only to triumph against the Girondins, but also to save themselves. In other words, Matisse sees a similar dynamic to what compelled the realignment of the Jacobins to the radical demands of the sans culottes as discussed in episode 58. Political necessity, specifically the threat of the enraged, usurping the position of the standard-bearers of the revolutionary left, compelled the mountain to embrace insurrection, irrelevant of any angst towards popular violence and purges of elected deputies. Other historians debate the exact dynamics at play here, but countless claim that the enraged played a leading role, if not the leading role, in planning and commencing the insurrection. But this is where this digression gets interesting. After the commune's reinstallation, and after the expansion of the Central Revolutionary Committee to include representatives from both the commune and the department, the balance of power within the insurrectionary movement shifted. Suddenly, the more mainstream Jacobins represented an outright majority on the Central Revolutionary Committee. Furthermore, while the re empowered commune had its internal divisions, a majority of its officials were more sympathetic to the mainstream elements of the Jacobin Club rather than the more radical enraged. This is important because these developments helped to minimize the influence of those associated with the ultra radical movement furthermore it also reduced the influence of those associated with a bear another more radical grouping that will become increasingly prominent in the future now to go one step further author daniel gruen claims that dobson's actions to dismiss and then immediately reinstall the commune was actually a deliberate manoeuvre designed to counter the influence of the enraged. Dobson, who was also elected to the Central Revolutionary Committee upon his release from prison, seemingly sought to shape developments in favour of the more mainstream Jacobins. Thus, what we have here, at least in the view of some, is deliberate attempts occurring mid-insurrection to alter the balance of power within the insurrectionary movement. So, with coordinated efforts to transform an insurrection, which historian Mati claims was made by the enraged, into an insurrection which primarily benefited
2: the more moderate Jacobins, we must ask ourselves the question, why? Given the moving of the mountain, in which the Jacobin Club adopted many of the iconic
1: social, political, and economic demands of the enraged, why is factionalism still lurking beneath the surface? Well, at issue here is not just the direction of the insurrection, but rather the direction of the revolution itself. By the end of May, it remained to be seen if this was a single insurrection, with relatively limited goals, or in fact, a third revolution. Despite the Jacobins realigning themselves to many of the policy priorities of the enraged, the two groups still had wildly divergent world views. Perhaps most importantly, there was division over whether France should replace its new representative democracy with something else. For all of their differences, both the Girondins and the Montagnards championed representative democracy. They both held to the idea that the best form of government was one where citizens elected representatives to legislate on their behalf. This is the form of democracy which dominates the democratic world in the 21st century, albeit with numerous variations. However, back in the late 18th century, the ascent of representative democracy was far from a foregone or obvious conclusion, and enraged leaders like Vallée repudiated this form of government. Instead, Vallée saw representative democracy as corrupt and neglectful. As an alternative, he advocated for direct democracy, where voters would assemble and actively deliberate and vote upon individual issues on a regular basis. This was a dramatic shift from the representative system, and was deemed too radical by the vast majority of the Jacobins. However, with the convention elected to write a new constitution, this was far from a theoretical debate. Should the enraged triumph in the capital, it could exert considerable influence upon the convention especially if the convention had been purged of a large number of deputies. Remember, some radicals didn't just want to purge the Girondin leadership, nor all of the Girondin deputies, but rather any deputy who failed to vote for the king's execution. That would be almost half the convention. Robespierre himself feared that a rump convention could be bullied by the enraged, to draft a new form of democratic government that even the Jacobins would be unable to support. But the issue of direct democracy was just one of the many in which the Mountain and the Enraged continued to differ. With the two groups having divergent views on everything from property rights to the proper place of women in society, the Enraged and the Jacobins had considerable philosophical differences, even if the mountain had shifted in some of their stances. What this means is that even while the revolutionary forces of Paris were acting in union to purge the Girondins, they fundamentally disagreed on whether the purge was the goal of the insurrection or merely the first component of a much broader and more radical program. Furthermore even on the issue of purging, differing views were plentiful. Behind the scenes, Jacobin leaders, like Robespierre, were actively trying to limit the number of deputies to be purged, given their concerns regarding the vulnerability of a smaller convention to the ultra-radicals of Paris. So, the point I want to highlight here is this. While everything may appear peaceful, Within the insurrectionary movement, the next set of factional dynamics which would come to consume the revolution were already at play. They might be hidden under the surface,
2: but peer beneath and seemingly future battles have already begun. Back in Paris, the situation in the streets can be described in one simple word.
1: Confusion. With the bells ringing since before dawn, everyone knew something was up. They just didn't know what. With the September massacres on everyone's minds, the confusion was mixed with a solid dose of anxiety. Just who was sounding the alarm? Why was the alarm being sounded? Was this a conspiracy? Or the attempt to foil a conspiracy? The questions were endless. As such, Regular citizens poured onto the streets, as did armed men ready to fight for either the Girondins or the Jacobins. In the convention, questions were being raised as well. Some deputies had begun to arrive in the early hours, having heard the ringing of the bells, while others filtered in throughout the morning. Interestingly, the Girondin deputies decided to attend. Why they arrived at the convention? when it appeared that their long-feared purge was at hand, is unknown. Some did seem genuinely content with the idea of dying nobly at their posts. Others were perhaps confident that this commotion would pass, following the same trajectory of other failed insurrections. After all, aborted attempts at purging the Girondins had been occurring for the last three months. Whatever the case may be, the situation in the convention quickly turned from confusion to confrontation and commotion. As early as 6am, perhaps 100 deputies were already present, and Jacobin deputies were demanding the suppression of the Commission of Twelve. Girondins claimed that no free debate was possible in the midst of insurrection, and some Jacobins replied, what insurrection? Instead. They claimed that the disturbances in the capital were in response to the unjust and oppressive actions of the Commission of Twelve, and therefore the unrest was the fault of the Girondins, who had needlessly re-established the Commission days prior. But the sparks really started to fly with a dramatic speech from Danton, demanding the abolition of the Twelve. Still a member of the Committee of Public Safety and known for his connections to the clubs and revolutionary societies, Danton was called upon to give a report on the situation in the capital. Instead, he let loose. Attributing the day's disturbances to the commission's restoration, Danton denounced the Commission of Twelve as an institution created solely for the suppression of popular energy. Accusing it of persecuting public officials whose only crime was merely excess patriotism, he rounded on the Girondins and proceeded to argue with those who defended the commission. Once more, the convention descended into commotion as shouting matches between rival deputies substituted any proper form of debate. With the public galleries as boisterous as ever and large crowds gathering outside the convention, The scene was shambolic, deafening
2: and not at all conducive to addressing the latest crisis. It was in this chaotic scene that a delegation from the Paris Commune finally arrived. I say
1: a delegation because this will be the first of many delegations, representing the Commune, the Department, the sections in the form of the Avicii Assembly or some combination thereof. Amidst shouts of The Commune! The Commune! from Jacobin deputies, the delegation was finally given the floor. Now essentially an insurrectionary commune, thanks to its earlier dissolution and subsequent re-establishment, the municipality's delegation had no need to moderate their accusations and
2: demands. However, it did just that. And, at least to me, that was a surprise. To digress
1: for a moment, in order to get this episode right, I've spent a lot of time reading the French Parliamentary Archives. Considering I don't speak French, you can imagine how fun this has been. But historians often condense speeches and events like these into just a few headline quotes and brief summaries, making it very difficult for people like me to ascertain precisely what happened when. Yet, when you look into the official archives, you'll find no record that this first delegation made any explicit demand to either suppress the Commission of Twelve or purge the Girondin deputies. Instead, it merely sought to justify the ongoing actions of the Avicii Assembly and the authorities of Paris. According to the delegation, men of the city's sections had discovered a great plot against liberty and equality. In an effort to foil this plot, the sections had come together to prevent its success and detain those engaged in counter revolutionary activities. Thus, the people had risen to stop counter revolution and overthrow tyranny, just as they had on the 14th of July and the 10th of August, those dates being the storming of the Bastille and the overthrow of the monarchy, respectively. Claiming that public confidence surrounded all deputies who were worthy of it, what was left unsaid was that many radicals in the insurrectionary bodies strongly believed that numerous deputies in the Convention were worthy not of public confidence, but rather of a prompt execution. Detailing measures taken to secure private property and ensure that armed citizens would be paid for however long was necessary to remain at arms, the delegation withdrew. Needless to say, the Girondins were having none of it. The discovery of a great plot against liberty and equality? Sure, and pigs can fly. The Girondin deputy, Gaudet, "'wasted no time in his stinging rebuke. "'Addressing his colleagues in the convention, "'Gaudet proclaimed, "'It is only through your courage and your firmness "'that you will make the cause of freedom triumph "'and that you will ensure the strengthening of the Republic "'on this day, which is to be a day of mourning for good citizens. "'The petitioners who have just appeared at the bar,' have spoken of a great conspiracy. They only got one word wrong. Instead of announcing they had discovered it, they should have said that they had executed it. Cries of indignation erupted as Gordaire delivered his reply. With the public galleries full of Jacobin sympathisers, and some petitioners just hanging around after their delegation ceded the floor, the Girondins were bombarded with interruptions and cries as they attempted to object to the session's proceedings. According to the Girondins, the convention was not free, and therefore could not deliberate on any matter. Time and time again, they made this claim, but one could barely hear their protests because of, well, Other protests. Both Jacobin deputies and their supporters hounded the Girondins as they complained of the commotion consuming the convention. Tensions remained high and the usual disorder soon broke out. Amidst the disarray, a new delegation arrived at the convention, this one representing the 48 sections of Paris. To be clear, despite the claims of this delegation, The actual number of the sections fully supporting the insurrection is somewhere in the mid-thirties. Perhaps just more than a quarter of the sections were either abstaining or actively opposing the ongoing insurrection. However, as a majority of the sections had sent delegates to the insurrectionary Avicii Assembly, the delegation of that assembly felt it within their rights to stylize themselves as the representatives of all of the sections of Paris. Now, unlike the first delegation from the Commune, this delegation from the sections presented a much punchier set of demands. Denouncing the wicked conspiracies of the Girondins, the petitioners expected nine policies from the Convention. In a prime example of the broad agenda of the revolutionary cohorts of Paris, these policies were a mixture of political, social and economic in nature. If we start with the non-political, the demands included the formation of a central revolutionary army, composed of sans-culottes. This army would theoretically protect true patriots from internal enemies. Sort of like the armed sans-culottes, which were right then intimidating, (coughs) I mean mean protecting the convention. Funded by a tax on the wealthy, this trustworthy citizen army would be replicated in every city of the republic. Also to be funded by a tax on the wealthy was a fixed price on bread, along with state-funded workshops to manufacture weapons and other military supplies. Not to be left out were the mothers, wives, and children of fallen heroes, with demands for government assistance for those who lost family in the war. However, in the midst of insurrection, this delegation had political demands as well. And no, I won't be awarding prizes to anyone who guesses the purge of the Girondins as being a line item on that list. Specifically, the petitioners demanded a decree of accusation be brought against the so-called 22. These were the leading Girondin deputies, which had previously been singled out for prescription. In addition to this, the same treatment should be given to those Girondins on the Commission of Twelve, along with arrests for the Girondin Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Finance. Scarcely had the convention had a chance to process this petition when a new delegation arrived, this time representing the department, the commune, and the sections. Further ratcheting up the rhetoric, this combined delegation fixated itself on the menace of the Girondin faction, routinely denouncing it and demanding swift measures to punish the accused plotters and counter-revolutionaries. One Conservative deputy dared to interrupt, claiming it was the petitioners, not the Girondins, who were performing atrocious insults against the nation. The public galleries erupted, along with the growing number of petitioners and everyday citizens who were intermingled with Jacobin deputies. Cries of the Abbey, the Abbey, echoed through the chamber, a reference to the prison which had been the scene of so much bloodshed the previous September. Allowed to continue, the petitioners specifically named many of the leading Girondins they sought to arrest. Here is the start of the delegation's speech, and it leaves nothing uncertain in terms of their demands. Legislators, the City and the Department of Paris, have long been calumniated in the eyes of the world. The same men who wanted to ruin Paris in the public opinion are the instigators of the massacres in Lavandie. It is they who flatter and keep up the hopes of our enemies. It is they who revile the constituted authorities, who strive to mislead the people, that they may have a right to complain of them. It is they who denounce to you imaginary plots, that they may create real ones, It is they who have demanded the commission of twelve, in order to oppress the liberty of the people. Finally, it is they who, by a criminal ferment, by contrived addresses, by their correspondence, keep up dissensions and aminosities in your bosom, and deprive the country of the most important of benefits, a good constitution which it has bought by so many sacrifices. So, according to the petitioners, the Girondins were responsible for pretty much everything. They slandered Paris, they inflamed civil war, they instigated the massacres of patriots in the Vendee. Hell, they probably cancelled Christmas. Oh wait, actually it's the Jacobins that will do that, don't worry, we will get there eventually. The point here is that the pressure was coming thick and fast to not only expel, but also to arrest the so-called 22. This was the list of Girondin deputies that the Jacobin mayor Pache had first put to the convention in the aftermath of Marat's impeachment back in April. However, the actual number of Girondins in the crosshairs was more fluid than this number suggests. This deputation also wanted the arrest of current and former ministers, along with the members of the Commission of Twelve. Having heard the delegation, the Convention returned to debate, and the Girondins once again protested further discussions on the grounds that the Convention was not free. Although the deputies were not literally being threatened with violence, this so-called moral insurrection was implicitly threatening violence, and so the deputies were in no place to debate freely. At least, according to the Girondins. The Jacobins disagreed, demanding that the session continue, sensing an opportunity to secure at least some victories amongst the disorder. And, to be clear, disorder is the appropriate word. With many petitioners now occupying the floor and the seating of the convention, it was impossible to tell who was a deputy and who was a regular citizen. And it was amidst these loud and chaotic scenes that the influential deputy Berrer tried to make himself heard. One of the most prominent members of the plane, it had been Berrer who suggested the Commission of Twelve, ironically the object of so much fury from the day's petitioners. Representing the Committee of Public Safety, of which he had been elected to back in April, Berre proposed a series of decrees based on the petitions the convention had been receiving. Importantly, while this decree only promised that the committee would investigate accusations of conspiracies against the Girondins, it did explicitly include the dissolution of the loathed Commission of Twelve. The Jacobins sought to bring Barrere's decree to a vote, but the Girondins continued their protests. What occurred next was farcical. Given the presence of petitioners and protesters amongst the deputies, it was impossible to figure out who was who. The Girondins argued that this disorder was sufficient to suspend any vote, but the Jacobins disagreed. Instead, they all simply ran over to the right side of the hall, leaving a bunch of petitioners sitting by themselves on the benches, that the Jacobins usually occupied. With the Girondins and the Jacobins crammed together on one side of the chamber, the Jacobins argued that it was now possible to tell deputies apart from everyday citizens,
2: and thus the vote should proceed. And it was in this ludicrous and absurd situation, one that was wholly inappropriate for a free and fair debate, that the National Convention continued to deliberate. Having failed to stop the session, a small group of Girondins quit the hall in
1: protest, led by the prominent Girondin orator, Vernieu. However, Vernieu soon returned. The reason for this is disputed, but perhaps walking out of the convention was neither the most practical nor sensible if the aim of the game was staying alive. By the time he returned, Robespierre occupied the Tribune, lending his influential voice to the Jacobin cause and rallying support around Borea's proposal to abolish the Commission of Twelve. Frustrated by Robespierre's speech, Vernieu interjected and demanded Robespierre conclude. Robespierre spotted an opportunity and seized it. The prominent Jacobin proclaimed, Yes, I shall conclude, and against you, against you who, after the revolution of 10 August, sought to send those who made it to the scaffold, against you who have constantly called for the destruction of Paris, against you who tried to save the tyrant, against you who conspired with de Maurier, against you who bitterly pursued the very patriots whose heads de Maurier demanded, against you whose criminal vengeance has provoked the very cries of indignation that you want to make a crime on the part of your victims. Well, my conclusion is a decree of accusation against all the accomplices of De Maurier and all those designated by the petitioners. A Decree of Accusation against all those designated by the petitioners. This was not the first time Robespierre had demanded action against Brousseau, Roland, and his Girondin rivals, but it was the first time that such a demand had a chance of succeeding. With deputies no longer immune to prosecution, and the chamber filled with armed protesters supportive of the Jacobin cause, The
2: Girondins were vulnerable. In fact, they were sitting ducks. Yet, these ducks were not plucked. Not yet. Instead, they were roasted slowly.
1: Although impossible to know why, there appears to be a simple reason for the failure of the insurrectionists to purge the Girondin deputies on the 31st of May. While Robespierre and the petitioners Had demanded a decree of accusation, such a decree had not been proposed by Berre and the Committee of Public Safety. After Robespierre's speech, the Girondins once again tried to have the session concluded, and many Jacobins thus lobbied for an immediate vote on Berre's proposed decree. Thus, in taking the opportunity to abolish the Commission of Twelve, they foregoed the opportunity to arrest the Girondins. Now, had they thought about this a little more, they could, theoretically, have done this then and there. But remember, Jacobin deputies were not leading this insurrection, and individuals like Barré and potentially Danton were deliberately trying to moderate the insurrection and focus its energies on the Commission of Twelve. Combined with the fact that many deputies of the plain, had zero appetite to start purging fellow members, there was just insufficient coordination and pressure on the convention to overcome resistance to these more radical demands. Thus, amidst the still chaotic scenes, it was Berere's decree which was voted upon, and it was his more moderate proposals which passed. The Commission of Twelve was dissolved, but the convention Was silent on the fate of the Gironde. It's impossible to determine the true tally of votes, nor the genuine will of the national government. But between the protesters and the petitioners, between the shouts and the cries, between the deputies and citizens sitting side by side, the convention,
2: after many hours, had finally done something. And, believe it or not, the people were satisfied with this something. Having scored an immense
1: victory against what had become a revolutionary boogeyman, momentum for further action dissipated with the demise of the Commission of Twelve.
2: The day ended with no further action. Thus, by the 1st of June, all sides had victories,
1: and all sides had defeats. The Girondins were besieged and weakened, isolated from support and clearly unable to command a majority in the convention. But once again, an attempted purge had failed, and they could at least take comfort in the fact that they remained at their posts. Perhaps the opportunity would soon arise to call for aid from the departments and once again take back the
2: initiative. As long as they weren't in prison, they still had a chance. Yet this admittedly small
1: amount of comfort for the Girondins was a large amount of discomfort for their opponents. While the Convention had decreed the abolition of the Commission of Twelve, the treacherous Girondins remained free. For the insurgents of Paris, the battle was not even half won and many considered the day a defeat. With the Girondins still sitting in the convention, their corruption, their treason, their counter-revolutionary conspiracies remained an existential threat to Paris and the revolution at large. Isnar had threatened the city with complete destruction should an attack occur on the national representation. With that attack occurring, and failing what now would come to pass. Frustrated by setbacks, and spurred on by necessity, the insurrectionists of Paris came to a simple conclusion. As long as the Girondins remained in the Convention, insurrection must remain in the capital. Thank you for listening to episode 60 The Purge of the Girondins, Part 2. In the next episode, we will explore the insurrection of 2 June 1793. An insurrection with a lot more weapons and a lot more commotion. Members on the true revolutionary tier already have early access. The episode extra for this episode examines the wide variety of responses to Isna's inflammatory speech threatening Paris and we'll be providing greater context for both that speech and the insurrection as we do so. Before you go, I'd like to ask you a question. Did you enjoy this episode? Did you find it entertaining? Did you find it educational? Well, if you did, then that's fantastic, and I'd like to keep bringing you episodes like this in the future. But to do so, I desperately need your support. These episodes take a tremendous amount of work, and I'm struggling to make great history sustainable. So please, follow the links in the show notes or on the website, and join the community of amazing people who are keeping great history on the air. Finally, if you could find just one opportunity between now and the next episode to share the podcast, that would be fantastic. Don't forget to check out the new Discord and come join the conversation and keep your eyes open for other announcements over the next few weeks. Another warm welcome to the newest members of the Grey History community and a special call out again to the amazingly generous Heroes of the Revolution, Brian, Christy, Charles, Jeff, Olga, Kevin and Noel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support.
2: Stay safe and have a great day.
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: I interrupt this regular programming to bring you some alarming news. There's been some counter-revolutionary activity. I suppose it's a mark of the show's growing popularity, but unfortunately, some reactionary fun sponges have recently left Grey History's first one and two-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Usually, I would ignore such unenlightened behavior and consider it an inevitable achievement of all noteworthy podcasts. But, besides complaining about my shitty jokes and apparently lack of detail, yes, you heard right, these reviews are quite literally impacting the discoverability of the show for new listeners. That, of course, is jeopardising this experiment in full-time production, which I think we can all agree we don't want to jeopardise. So, If you listen to Apple Podcasts in particular and you haven't already done so, if you could please leave a written review, that would be absolutely amazing. Just go to Grey History in the app and scroll down to the review section and help me expunge this counter-revolutionary plot. Thank you again for all your help, and now back to the show.